Good morning, church. How you doing? Good to have you here. Junior high, you have a class. And if you filled out a connection card, you have those. If you'll send those down that way, they'll get picked up for us. you're a guest with us today, we're really glad you're here with us. We hope that you are kind of feel like you're an episode of the Waltons or maybe the Robertson family from Duck Dynasty, you know what I mean. Everyone's around the table. Most of us all know each other here. If you're here as a guest and you don't quite know us yet, you'll feel comfortable soon enough, all right? And so we're glad you're with us, glad to have you with us, especially today as we um, uh, get to honor one of our missionaries, we get to honor one of our families and their ministries. Also, um, just by way of update on uh, some of our other family members, um, little Eliana uh, Abir came home Friday night. Uh, Dad is here with brother, uh, and uh, uh, she is doing well, and they still have no real reason why she was in seizure and stuff like that and why it was so difficult to get her under control, but they're still investigating that, and um, she's feeling pretty good. She ran a little bit of a fever last night, so she's not here today, but you know they're feeling pretty good about it. So continue to pray for them as they try and figure that out. And then also, um, Sharon Miller, as you know, came home from the hospital, but she's still having a little trouble with nausea and stuff with her drugs and all, so she's not with us today. Her dad, Ken, is. We want to keep them and their family in prayer as well, all right? So, um, you know, and when we talk about, people want to make a difference, don't we? I mean, that's what people say. They want to make a difference in all. And uh, uh, Joe and Iris, I think, you know, are making a, have made a difference. And wherever they go and whatever they're doing, they're going to make a difference, you know. The mirrors in Haiti and their ministry there and those that they're reaching out to and those their impact, you're making a difference. And, and the only thing I wish that God did a little bit differently was that we knew all that now as opposed to maybe having to wait till eternity to find that out, you know. But, um, you know, I think that the seeds that were sown by the, mission, the missionary-minded, the M&M program, those seeds will be reaping fruit for decades to come, you know. And I just have really loved that. If you've never gone downstairs and seen our missionary wall and that reading program associated with missionaries from the ages, you need to get down and see that. And just uh, Joe and Iris, um, really going to miss you. And uh, the only thing more fearful than preaching, like for family members, is preaching and seeing Joe Strauss walk up the aisle after the sermon towards you. He's only done that a couple of times, you know, so I just have such a deep respect for him and for his knowledge of the Word of God and his handle on it, and, um, you know, Joe was recently in the hospital back in January, and uh, as is often the case, you hear you go, you try and minister to them, and, and I loved going because I always came away really happy and enjoyed my time with them. It was a blessing, and I, I learned about hospital ministry while I was supposed to be there ministering to them, you know, and so it was a, it was a very meaningful thing to me. And so we appreciate you, and uh, we're willing to, like, pitch in and keep you here if you want to stay. They're not doing that. Okay, never mind. Well, open up your Bibles to Psalm 32. This morning, I am going to demonstrate how you can factor in Edgar Allan Poe to a Sunday morning service. Or at least I'm going to try to, all right? 
If you stay with me as I read something for you, and you might know what this is from since I've already introduced the author. The closing paragraphs to a short story and my very valiant attempt to be dramatic. And those of you who are dramatic, don't say anything about my attempt myself. No doubt I grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound. Much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides and as if excited to flurry by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. What could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had sat. I grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose all around me, steadily increasing. It grew louder and louder and louder, and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? No, no. They heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought and this I think, but anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die, and now and again, and hark, it's louder and louder and louder. Villains, I shrieked, disassemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here is the beating of his hideous heart. As my little son Owen would say, spooky. <laughs> yeah, the telltale heart. Edgar Allan's um, short story from 1843, you know, where uh, uh, this man murdered a gentleman and then hid him under the wooden planks of his home. And when the police come to investigate the murder, they find themselves enjoying themselves in the home and they sit and chat and make merry and talk as our murderer has his crime well up inside of his head and continued to increase until finally he admits what was not asked of him. He admits to the murder. Psalm 32 has a little bit of that, where here we have also the power and the importance of confession. Many would say that um, this, this passage is connected to Psalm 51, where David finally does confess to the sin of Bathsheba and to the murder of um, her husband, Uriah. And also, this particular psalm is also quoted in Romans 4, 7, and 8 by Paul, and it was a favorite of Luther and Augustine. And um, so what we want to do is, uh, right now, let's read it. I'm going to read this morning from the NIV. Let's read it, and then we'll pull some observations out of it, all right? Psalm Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. 
and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to you, Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. But you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which has no understanding, but must be controlled by the bit and the bridle, and they will not, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord, and be glad you're righteous, seeing, seeing all you who are upright in heart. Father, this morning I come to you, and we're grateful for the truth of your word. Lord, may we find it be true in our life. And today, may you and your Holy Spirit fine-tune this word to the hearts of each and every man and woman in this room, that you would speak to us, that we would eagerly listen for you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, really, really good psalm. It has, again, as so many of the psalms do, it has a familiar passage in it to us that some of us might pick up on. But let's look at it real quickly. very first thing it does in verse 1 is it begins to speak about blessed. And it begins to say that those who are, are blessed, who are, they are the ones whose sins or crimes are forgiven. They are blessed because there's no record of them anymore. They're blessed because it does, they don't have to answer for those sins or crimes anymore. And they're blessed because there's no deceit or manipulation about those, those sins. You know, when in here, depending on the particular translation you might use, it says in um, verse 1, it says, whose sins are covered. Think about it somewhat like that, where perhaps one, a criminal, might have committed a crime, but then those crimes are expunged or wiped away off their record, and so their record is clean. They're covered. They've been taken away. And he says, anyone who's experienced sin, which all of us have, perhaps, though, if some of us have experienced crime, you know, where you have something on your record and what you wished was it could be taken off, because you know that every time someone looks at your record, they see what you did. I have to share a story with you that is really not related, but I've been waiting for a chance to tell you about this. I teach at a halfway house, you know, on Wednesday mornings. And in my halfway house, they're all guys who are working through recovery. And many of them are there because they're on probation or something. And so recently, I pulled up my wallet and I said, and we were talking about sin, and I did this, you know, this is sin. God Christ removes our sin. And, and one of the guys stood up, held up his hand at the end, and finally goes, Pastor Tim, he said, you're in a room full of addicts, and criminals never pull out your wallet in public. <laughs> I've been waiting to tell you guys about that. And so, the, you know, those guys down there, they understand this, having their crimes wiped away. And we should as well. We should as well. When we've done something wrong, we would love for it to be forgotten. We'd love for it to not be brought up again. We'd love for it to be something that didn't influence our future. And he says, blessed is the one who has experienced that. Blessed is the one who doesn't have those things still on their record. Still on their record. And then finally, he says, the last part of it there in this particular section, he says, whose spirit there is no deceit. Think about this. And if you uh, think about this. When you've been caught doing wrong, what's the first thing you do? You hide it. You manipulate the circumstances. 
You manipulate those who caught you. You are immediately trying to figure out, how do I get out of being caught? And so, you know, in our sin, I mean, like, look, look at what Adam and Eve did immediately. Where are you? Well, the one that you sent me. And like, they started finger pointing. They started blame shifting. And they were manipulating. There was, there was a deceitfulness about being caught in doing wrong. And he says, blessed is the one who doesn't have to hide, who doesn't have to manage their situation, who doesn't have to use trickery or lies or manipulation, who doesn't have to manage how people see you. You can just be yourself because you're not afraid of your sins catching up with you. Then he, he begins the, the very next passage, verses 3 and 4, verse there, they compare the one who is blessed toward the one who is not. The one who is tormented, literally, in this particular section here. Tormented. Because he talks about that in my sin, my bones were wasted away. He goes, when I was silent about it, when I didn't come and talk about it, when I didn't come and deal with it, when I didn't make amends, he said, when that was the case, what happened to me was this. It physically affected me. He speaks about, in this poetic way, the Hebrew poetry here, he speaks about that my bones wasted away, that I groaned all day, um, and, and that your hand was heavy upon me night and day. And then finally he, he says, my strength was sapped, as in the heat of the summer. And right there, that, that right there, there's a, a nice little imagery we can put there, but like, you know, on our front porch, Betty always has flowers on our front porch, and in the heat of the summer, when that sun has come over the house and begun to, to bear down onto that front porch, all those flowers no longer have that vigor of standing up straight, but they've begun to wilt. They've begun to wilt in the heat of the summer. And he says, that's the way I was when my sin was unconfessed when I hit it, when I was silent about it. That's the way I was. Psalm 102 also talks about this as well. In Psalm 102, it speaks about having, uh, dealing with fever and frailty and pain and loneliness. Loneliness. That's very true. That is really true. And I'm just going to pause right there. You know, it also, that passage also speaks about sleeplessness and rejection and sorrow. Because there's like this heart underneath the floorboards of their life that is beating, that is pounding, and it's wearing them down. But the one thing that in Psalm 102 that the psalmist says, he speaks about loneliness right there. I want to address that really quickly. Because in the context of our local church here, of our family here, when we begin to see family members who are not around as much, when we begin to see family members who are changing their friendships in our family. This is not always the case, but it's too often the case. There's a heart beating under the floorboards of their life. And they begin to distance themselves from you and I, from other believers. They begin to change their relationships because they're afraid that heart beating will hear it. They begin to change those relationships because they don't want the accountability for their lifestyle. They don't want the accountability for their sin, for what they're doing wrong, for what they've done wrong. 
And though sitting in this room right now, we might not know what that is, but they know what it is. And that heart is beating under the floorboard of their life. And they hear it. And they're afraid that you and I will hear it also. And they begin to distance themselves. And distance themselves from God as well. As many of the Psalms do, this one does as well. And David, as he writes it, he comes to a place where he turns the corner. The mood changes, the the tone changes. And in verse 5, and in verse 5 he says this, he says, But I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover it up. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my guilt. I will I will. So he says, but I acknowledge my sin to you. And when I did, I uncovered it. I said for what it was. And in doing so, I confessed to you, and I sought forgiveness from you, and you forgave me. Then he begins to talk about what God is like. Then he begins to talk about that. And, and we come to this passage, these, these, this next few verses here, especially verse 7, where we come into, there's a chorus there that many of us probably know. And in verse 7, he, he has this. Let's read the passage. It says, you are a hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And, and it's hard to even say those words for some of us who know that chorus without even saying it because the old chorus goes, You are a hiding place. You always, you know it? Yeah. It just comes right in when we read it. And it speaks to who he is. One of the things that I think is really interesting about that is that, you know, when he speaks about who Christ is, when he speaks about who God is, when he talks about having a hiding place, when he talks about where he would go, you notice we've talked about this in heaven as well, you know, we don't hide somewhere. We hide in someone. You know, and so in the next, and that verse says, you, God, are my hiding place. You protect me. You surround me. And so even like when we think about heaven, we just talked about this a few weeks ago. It's kind of like we talk about heaven as a place we want to be, but that place we want to be would be nothing without him. And so heaven is, as much as it might be a place, it's really who is there that makes it spectacular. It's really who is there that gives us hope. And so in this passage, again, he doesn't talk about places to hide. He doesn't talk about places that give protection. He doesn't talk about armies or governments or anything like that that, give, that keep him safe or surround him. He says, it is you. It is you that protects, surrounds and keeps me safe. And then in the very next verse, verse 8, the, 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 the speaker changes. It goes from being David who's writing. Now the Lord speaks back to David, and the Lord says these things there. In verse 9, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. You know, and, and, and right there, look, you know, first of all, he says, God, this is who you are, and God says, this is what I do. I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will counsel you. I will watch over you. Here's that surrounding thing that, the, that David says, you surround me. He goes, I'll watch over you. I will instruct you. I will do all these things. I will do all the, He's talking about this relationship he has with, 
with his people, with David in this case. And then the very next thing he says is something, you know, you're like going, what is he saying? Why does he bring up mules? Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Well, I've been gone from home a long time, and I don't have to say that I'm not an expert in bit and bridles anymore, but I got a buddy who is. My buddy, the, the, one, the guy that's expert is the one on the lower side, not the other one. <laughs> Greg, my buddy I grew up in high school with, I still stay in touch with, Greg, I called Greg and I said, so tell me everything I need to know about bits and bridles and mules and horses, because this is what Psalm 32 says. So he looked it up and we sat on the phone and had a little short conversation about this. And he raises horses and sells them and stuff on his ranch there in Texas. And he said, the bit and the bridle is all about this, submission and pressure. I said, hmm, that's interesting. In the context of the psalm, he says the bit and the bridle is all about submission and pressure. And so this is what, this is what he's referring to. The bit goes in the horse's mouth, and it presses on the tongue and applies pressure to the bars in the mouth. The bars are a sensitive cartilage that can easily feel the movement of that metal bit in the mouth. And a bit works by exerting pressure inside the horse's mouth. And they're often assisted by the bridle, you know, and stuff. And it adds additional pressure to the horse's head, the cheeks, the chin, or the nose. The idea is is that by moving away from the discomfort of the pressing bit, the horse moves in the direction the rider wants to go. And a properly trained horse, you know, and when knowledge brought, it all works together to create where there's submission and greater impact. You can do more with that horse when he's trained. So, this thing about stubbornness, this thing about unsubmission, and the need for pressure is coupled between verses 8 and 10. So verse 8, verse 8 says, this is what I'll do for you. I will teach you. I'll instruct you. I'll, I'll counsel you. I'll watch over you. And then verse 10 says, but many are the woes of the wicked. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. He takes trust. He takes what God, the relationship he wants to have with us. And he bookends it against stubbornness and a lack of submission. And what he's saying with this is that for those who submit, for those who yield to me, for those who trust me, this is what it's like. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will teach you. I'll instruct you. I'll surround you. I'll give you unfailing love that surrounds you. But don't be like the unsubmissive. Don't be like the stubborn who needs this pressure always to guide them, to push them, to make them go where they need to go. Really, this psalm is a comparison between a broken life and an unbroken life. And between a submitted life, I'm sorry, that should be unsubmitted life, And the difference between those two is that an unbroken life or an unsubmitted life, they know when they're caught. And that's what they're worried about. 
But a submitted life and a broken life knows that they've offended someone, God, or other people. And then knowing that they've offended, especially God, breaks them. Matter of fact, you should even notice in this passage here, David doesn't speak about uh, apologizing to Bathsheba because he, he used his authority to, to seduce her and then he killed her husband. Matter of fact, if you even go back now that I'm thinking about it, he says, you and you alone have I sinned against. Interesting phrase, isn't it? He says he realizes that his offense is the greatest against God because of God's holiness, because of his unsinfulness. So the psalm is really speaking to, want to the differences between those who are broken and those who are unbroken. There are some things we can learn about confession. We're going to save those for another time. But there's one last comment I want to go to that, we, that um, I, I mentioned a moment ago. And that's that, you know, if you, if you were to go back and you were to read the story of David and how he ended up in this place um, in the Old Testament about where he was at when he committed the sin, we don't have a whole lot of that background. But what we know, and what we know even from our own lives, is that sin is not a one-time episode. Sin that is the kind that keeps you up at night, the kind that um, makes your body, that affects you physically, that type of sin is the kind of sin that has been there for a while, residing and growing, festering, becoming more than the original sin. Rarely in our life are we ruined by one sin. It's uncommon for us to have to suffer as David did in Psalm 32 or as what's articulated in Psalm 102, to have sin affect our health and our life by just one sin, by like, you know, by maybe just like one lie. Instead, it's that that one thought, it's that that one emotion, or it's that one need or demand we have of God on our life goes unchecked. It has no boundaries around it. And it continues to grow and fester. And it continues to become more. And, and so really what we're saying is that, is that it's when this teeny tiny little thing begun, it continued to grow because, and then it became a huge issue that you can no longer control. We don't have to name names. We don't have to go and think about things. But each and every one of us know of someone in our life who has made just egregious mistakes, that the ripples are more like a tidal wave as they go out. And they impact many people, many people. That didn't happen over the course of the weekend. That happened over the course of years. Where one particular thought, one particular emotion one particular action happened and then was never confessed, never dealt with. And it multiplied to another and another and another and another and another and another. Until finally, that what was started as one thing that could have been dealt with, now all of a sudden was a giant thing. And what happens to us is that when we have become connected 
to this new sin, to this giant thing, it's like a growth on us. And to take it off of us is going to be painful. And the problem is that so many of us don't want it cut off. We'd rather live with it. And just make it ours. David is writing here, at one hand, of what it's like to live with a new growth, with new sin, and saying, no, I don't want to go back and confess. I don't want to go back and make those things right. I'd rather live with all the pain and the ongoing consequences of it going forward. It's not an isolated instance. It's the building up of wrong choices, wrong thinking, wrong actions over time until those things consume you. Until that's, that is the thing that even defines you. And the beauty is, is that God offers us the opportunity to come before him, to confess that, and to have it forgiven, to have it covered over so that we can begin to live a life that is not burdened down by that, that doesn't define us by that. So that we begin to live a life that doesn't have telltale hearts in it that chase us and haunt us and keep us up. One of the, one of the most uh, greatest quotes I can use from any of you, this one I just love because it's straightforward and it just says so much and how simple it is. When Dave Shaw came to Christ three or four years ago now, and he was working through his recovery and everything like that. One Sunday we were talking, and he just said, you know what? He, he said this. He just says, I sleep through the night now. That's the statement of a life that has had the sins forgiven, had them covered up, that they do not haunt anymore, and is experiencing that forgiveness it's just total and complete. This morning, if you're here and you don't have that, if you're here and you don't have that type of forgiveness, you can't say it's yours. You can, we can fix that. We can fix that so quickly. And it's simply just by confessing to God that you've done wrong, that you have sin in your life, acknowledging that it offends him, and asking him for forgiveness. Understanding that, that all of us owe a penalty for sin. All of us owe a penalty for what we've done wrong. But none of us can pay it off on and of ourselves. That's why so many work so hard at religion. Christ says, you don't have to pay for it. I paid for it when I died on the cross. That was your payment that I made for you. And so when we speak about taking him as your Savior, when we speak about trusting him as your Savior, that's what we're talking about. Trusting that his death is sufficient to pay your penalty for sin. And it's as simple as confessing, acknowledging that you've, that you've hurt, that you've offended him, and seeking his forgiveness. If you want to do that today, I encourage you to, to ask someone you're sitting around, come up and talk to me, talk to Scott, and, and take care of that right now so that tonight or this week you might be able to say for the first time, I slept through the night. I knew that it was all taken care of. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you um, for being the type of God 
who is deeply concerned for us. For being the type of God who is not like us, but instead you're totally otherworldly, you're just so different because we hold on to our offenses. We hold on to the things that people do to us, and we want to make them pay for it. We want to remind them of it, and we want them to have to like, um, suffer because they've offended us. And Father, you don't want to make us suffer for our offense. You want to forgive us for it. Father, this morning, we thank you that there are so many in this room who can say that they're forgiven and they sleep through the night. But Father, we know that there are others who can't say that, who are trying to figure that out. May they find in you that forgiveness that they need to cover their sins, to live without guilt and shame, and to say they too now sleep through the night. It's in you and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, folks. Um, If you want to come up and chat, I'll be up here. Really glad you're here.